welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, are increasingly important and influential providers of international development assistance. This plenary session at the 2014 Australasian Aid and International Development Policy Workshop provided updates and new analysis of aid from the emerging superpowers of China, India and Brazil. Good afternoon and welcome to our post-lunch plenary session on uh, making their mark, the BRICS and aid. We've heard quite a bit uh, over the last two days about the new aid landscape or the new aid regime. Uh, Ben Day, in an earlier session today, referred to it as the decline of the West and the rise of the rest. And in this session, we're going to hear from the superpowers amongst the rest, China, India, and Brazil. But we'll go deeper, so we won't be giving you sort of general characteristics and and projects of, of of these three providers, but rather we'll look at some of the specific challenges and motivations they face in their emerging roles. Uh, So we have three speakers today, and I'll move straight to it. We'd like to have our first speaker, uh, Dr. Tong Kwan Sun. Briefly, he's an associate professor at the Rural Development Institute of the Chinese Academy of Social Science, where he researches Chinese and international development assistance. The paper he's presenting today, he co-wrote with uh, Tai Dong Zhu from the Asia Foundation. Dr. Sun. Thank you, Hansia. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm very glad, uh, glad to be here to exchange ideas uh, about uh, the foreign aid regulations with you. Uh, what I will present is, uh, in fact, uh, uh, some findings of a research program that is uh, sponsored by Asian Foundation. And uh, uh, we did research since the end of uh, the year before last year and uh, finalized it. Uh, uh, at the end of last year. So uh, even <laughs> we finalized the research, but it's still a preliminary uh, research. So um, it's, it's uh, the, the, main, the, the, research, uh, the main part of the research is on, about the, the re, uh, for aid regulations of dark member countries. So uh, you see, uh, some of you may be more um, very important, uh, very interested in Chinese aid, but from Chinese side, we are very interested in the, what that number of countries have done and uh, what going on on the other side. So, uh, the purpose of our research is to learn from that member countries uh, to to see how we can improve the administration of Chinese aid and. Uh, uh, how to improve the aid effectiveness uh, to, to, to benefit uh, the recipient countries and China. Yeah. Uh, the co- content of my re- presentation will uh, include research context, context uh, and the cases selected we select some cases to, to uh, study to, to, to uh, give some implications. And the third one, I will present uh, the definitions, what definition I use in the uh, foreign aid regulation in, in my research. The fourth one is who, who has the 
uh, act to regulate foreign aid uh, among the key states, countries. And uh, the, fourth, uh, the fifth one is why, to, why have foreign aid to regulate, uh, act, sorry, uh, foreign aid act to, to regulate foreign aid. Uh, and then I will talk about the effects of the regulations, uh, emphasize on the uh, effects of acts. And then I will go to the foreign aid regulation of China. Uh, you may be more interested in it, so I will spend uh, a little more time on it. Uh, even it is not the most important part of our research. So finally, I will give some implications uh, to China, uh, what, what we found in the research. The research context. First is the rapid growth of aid volume uh, of China to the other, uh, other developing countries. Uh, as our white, uh, white paper of foreign aid uh, in 2011, the official foreign aid increased, the, the average uh, annual increase is 29.4% uh, since 2004-2009. Uh, so you can see very, very fast. So uh, in, in this case, the former administration framework is facing great problem. So we need to, to, to change, to improve the administration uh, to deal with the new situation. The third one is that uh, in China, the government is promoting the rule of law. Uh, so all the government departments had, should be regulated or within the uh, uh, administration to, to, uh, to do their things. So the fourth one is the accountability. The government should take their responsibility and who should be accountable to the performance of foreign aid. So uh, we have some clear uh, uh, definition of the of the, the government different government's role, but in the course of the rapid growth of the aid volume, then some more administrations join in. So it should be clear, clear, clarified who should be comfortable. Finally, the transparency. It's a big issue for China, Chinese aid. Uh, I, I, I had some questions from the uh, participants. Uh, this time or even before when I participate in some uh, meetings about foreign aid, uh, especially the, their concern, uh, the figure. What's the volume of Chinese aid it is? Uh, it, I don't know. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a question for you all. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so, you know, I sometimes learned some 
figure of Chinese foreign aid from the foreign researchers. And I know uh, in you some uh, doctorate students, doctorate, <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, I forgot the name. I, I'm not good at remembering the name. Sorry. You did a very good research on the Chinese aid to the island countries. So I, I, I have a, a higher expectation to your paper. So about transparency, you see this picture. It's a very interesting story about it. Uh, this old lady, it's, he, she is about 80 years old. Uh, two years ago, she uh, uh, go, went to the Ministry of Finance to ask for information about Chinese aid to North Korea. She was refused. <laughs> and then she went to the court, sued the ministry. <laughs> yeah, she said, the ministry should tell me <laughs> what's the figure. Why? Because she was uh, forced to move to another house uh, in the uh, urbanization, in the process of urbanization, the, 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 the local government uh, reconstruct the, that area. So she has to move, but she, has, she cannot get a, a satisfied compensation. <laughs> it's a really very interesting uh, case in China. Now, the cases we selected uh, uh, are Australia, Japan, South Korea, UK, and uh, US. The definition in our research of, of the foreign aid regulation, we define it as a combina combination of law and policy papers that bearing binding force or quasi binding force on foreign aid. The policy papers, there are some forms of policy papers. One is policy statements, uh, such as the white paper. And the second is regional or country development cooperation planning documents. <coughs> Acts. We formed from the case study of dark member countries that there are uh, five types of acts uh, in terms of foreign aid regulation. <coughs> First is basic law. That's the fundamental law for the uh, whole foreign aid regulation. Second, organizational law, such as there's a special uh, agency in charge of uh, foreign aid. And uh, third one is administrative rules and or some decrease from the uh, administration. Uh, the fourth one, bilateral and uh, multilateral development cooperation agreements. The, uh, the, the fifth one is other related regulations, such as the procurement, budgeting, uh, transportation, or auditing. Then, in the cases, who have basic law of foreign aid? U.S. U.S. has a foreign act of uh, 1961. This, this law was made in 1961. 
modified uh, almost every year. So now it's still there. Uh, the basic uh, provide basis of the foreign aid administration of U.S. U.K. U.K. has an international development act. Uh, as we studied, uh, U.K. The, the, the oldest uh, act on foreign aid was made by U.K. Uh, at the end of nine, uh, nineteen, uh, at the end of 19th centuries. <laughs> and the South Korea, South Korea in nineteen. Uh, uh, so, sorry, 2010, they made a framework act on international development cooperation. Who has not basic law? Australia. I will talk a little about, about it later. Who has not basic law about administrative rules? Japan. Japan has an ODA charter that was made by the cabinet of the government. So why have a foreign aid act? We, we found there are some uh, factors. The, the main factors here is one, the political system. Uh, in the United States and the UK, the, uh, I, as, as, as we, I see that in the United States, the, I don't know I, I, I'm right or not, almost everything has to be go through legislation. So it's not, it's very natural to, to have a pact there. And the, the second factor is the legal traditions. In the report of OECD in 2009, uh, the name, as I remember, of the report is Managing Aid. Uh, it is said that to have a pact or not uh, is related to the legal tradition of a country. But from our research, we, we, we found very less significant correlation between the uh, act and the legal tradition. Why? Uh, as we have, uh, as, let's see, the Austra Australia, USA, and the UK are all uh, common law countries. But US and UK has a law, Australia has not. And Japan is a civil law country. It has not. And South Korea is, is something, a, a mix of uh, civil law and uh, common law, but more uh, of a civil law country. It has an act. So I, I, I didn't see any more correlation between the act and the legal traditions. The third factor is the international and the domestic context. Uh, let's see South Korea. In order to join in OECD DAC, South Korea improved, uh, modified its regulations on foreign aid. So they made the International uh, uh, the Framework Act of uh, Development Cooperation. The fourth factor is the realisticness of regulatory impact analysis. After the analysis, to decide to have a law or not. For example, uh, Australia. As we researched, we found that in 1997, Australia has a report, uh, that is an evaluation report, uh, it's called Simon Report. Uh, 
The report gave, gave a suggestion to have a, a national charter on uh, foreign aid. But later, the government refused the proposal because the government thought that it, it doesn't matter to have a law or not. And then in 2011, I don't remember, it's in 2011, that the uh, Australian government has another evaluation report that the report reconfirmed that no need to have a law. So uh, let's see the facts, effects of uh, regulating foreign aid with facts. Uh, there are too many effects, but I want to uh, talk about the, the two important ones. First is the, the acts provide fundamental norms of foreign aid administration. In the acts, there, was, uh, there are some uh, common causes that propose goals, principles, targets, recipients, sectors, strategies of foreign aid. That's the basis of uh, operation of foreign aid. And the uh, second point is the uh, act strengthened the coordination between departments, uh, especially uh, the example is uh, uh, South Korea. We find that South Korea has a very uh, good uh, mechanism, that is uh, a coordination committee in the, uh, under the prime minister. So it's about all the ministries. Uh, another three points I want to mention is that uh, transparency. The act improves transparency of the administration of foreign aid and uh, uh, strengthens the accountability of foreign aid. So, uh, about Aid effectiveness, we presume that act should improve aid effectiveness, but no evidence to show that. About aid effectiveness, there are uh, generally five indicators to, to, to mirror uh, it. That is uh, relevance, efficiency, uh, effectiveness, uh, accountability, sustainability. Uh, Sometimes, uh, as in the South Korea's case, the act improved the relevance uh, because they have they combined the, the, the guidance of foreign aid to the uh, coordination committee. They have a, a uniform, unified uh, uh, principles. So the recipient countries have more power to negotiate with the uh, two ministries of uh, South Korea and improve the efficiency because uh, to reduce the many, many bureaucratic work. So uh, I only find evidence in, the, uh, in terms of relevance and uh, efficiency. But about aid, uh, aid effectiveness, we, uh, we thought that, that it's a core of two, uh, two sides of a core. Uh, one side is donor side, another is recipient side. So if we just uh, aid effectiveness, we have to go to the other side, uh, the recipient side. 
Now, let's see the foreign aid regulation in China. In China, we have uh, also policy and the law. Uh, first, the policy, we have policy statements. The policy statements include uh, government leader's statement and white paper, uh, government decisions and guidelines. <coughs> Acts, we have some low-level uh, rules. They are about funds management and some uh, about operation of foreign aid. So it's uh, very uh, at a lower level. And some re related laws, budgeting act, government procurement auditing. So let's see the institution arrangement of China uh, on the foreign aid. The highest is the <coughs> council, and then the in responsible ministry is Ministry of Commerce. Uh, another two important partners of it is Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Finance. So we have some uh, four specialized uh, agencies that in charge of foreign aid. Uh, three, at the bottom, the three, are the affiliated to, to Ministry of Commerce. And Acting Bank, uh, it's dependent. So uh, the, the left side, the left one is, uh, it's about the human resources uh, development. The center, in the center that is uh, uh, manage the supply of materials to, for, uh, to other countries. Uh, oh, sorry, that one is project, project management. And the right one is uh, the human resources management. We have also other agencies, government agencies involved in the management. Uh, so, yeah, I think I remind me that time is up. <laughs> uh, I want to emphasize a little on the, talk about a little about the implications. Yeah, what can China learn from the traditional donors? Uh, before I talk about the implication, I see the latest news. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Last April, I visited uh, Australia, and we visited uh, Aussie. We talked about uh, <laughs> the regulations of uh, Australia aid. So now it disappeared. But I, I, I think without law, maybe it's an it's a advantage to, to change the, the government organization. So, and I'm interested, another point that is more national interest emphasized by the government. So it returned. It seems to return back. Now, cost effectiveness reduced so many stuff. It's cost effectiveness. I don't know. Transparency. Uh, we, we we can find some materials about Aussie uh, aid information in the web on the website before, but now it can't. <laughs> So another one is Japanese ODA charter. Uh, just last night, I, I received an email from uh, one of my friends. He said that the charter is going to be reviewed by the government, responding to the call from business community. So 
Is there any model regulations? Oh, uh, even, the, even so, we found that we need, China still need to make our own rules, even not a law, but administrative rules. Uh, institutional coordination to improve it. Yeah. And uh, has a higher level supervision from the National People's Congress. And to improve the planning evaluation system and improve transparency. And finally, I want to emphasize that we should link up our regulation with the international soft law, that's some decisions of the UN and some the international community. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sun. Uh, very interesting to look at how the legal framework for aid can contribute or not to overall uh, aid effectiveness. Uh, moving along, I'd like to introduce Dr. Rani Mullen, who is the director of the Indian Development Cooperation Research uh, Unit at uh, Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, India. She's a senior visiting fellow there for a few more months. Thank you. Um, I'm rather overwhelmed at the turnout here. Uh, very nice to see that so many people are interested in hearing about the, the countries that uh, uh, are sort of called emerging or pivotal donors. Um, I would like to very much thank um, ANU for, for having us here and also the Asia Foundation for bringing me over here. Um, also, the Asia Foundation is the sponsor of a grant we have at the Center for Policy Research in Delhi to look at and build up India's first uh, database on what India does on foreign aid. Uh, believe it or not, Ministry of External Affairs, where Indian aid is located and managed, does not have a database that has actually an overview of Indian aid. So that's what I've been doing at CPR the last couple of years. Um, I'm an academic by training and will be going back to teach at my university in the US. Um, but hopefully we'll continue with this research program that we've built up. So I thought, you know, I was going to focus my presentation on Indian foreign aid and what India is doing and, and present five uh, countries to give you a little bit of a flavor of India's geostrategic interests, but I realized that maybe I should just step back and give a little bit of an overview of Indian foreign aid or development partnerships, which is the term that India prefers to use because they feel that aid um, has a hierarchical connotation. And um, India has, in fact, engaged in development partnerships since a couple years after attaining independence in 1949. Um, so it's not a new donor or, um, uh, you know, has been active in this field. What is new, however, is this trend that you can see here where, you know, uh, through to the turn of the century, the volume converted in U.S. dollars, million, millions, uh, was relatively low. But once, uh, as you might know, India... Uh, opened up its economy in the early 1990s due to uh, different economic pressures and economic growth rates really started to 
pick up by the early part, um, by the turn of the century. And as economic growth rates picked up, its development um, engagement also picked up. And so the green line is the total of Indian aid, uh, volume Indian grants and loans, which it's supposedly phasing out, but you still see a little bit there. Indian development uh, cooperation is managed through its Ministry of External Affairs, so um, very similar to uh, what you are changing to here in Australia. Um, and it, since a couple years, they have a new coordinating agency, administrative agency, called DPA, Development Partnership Administration. And they are really sort of an administrator. They don't make the policy decisions about who gets what. Those are made by others in uh, the Ministry of External Affairs uh, in conjunction with the ambassadors on the ground in the particular countries. So I just wanted to point out here that by, by this last year, depending on what exchange rate you use, um, India's aid budget for this last fiscal, this present fiscal year, is about 1.2 or 1.3 billion dollars in terms of grants and loans. Um, I will talk a little bit more about the other lending instruments, though we, we had a presentation this morning on Indian line of credit, so I won't go into it too much, but India basically uses three different tools of uh, engaging in development partnerships. One is the traditional uh, grants and loans, um, the other is the line of credits through the XM Bank, where um, since 2004-05, India is um, just reporting um, the differential between the market interest rate at which a loan would be given and the rate at which the government gives this line of credit. Only that part is reported in the budget. So it's minuscule, really, compared to um, grants, etc., but having this government backing allows the Exxon Bank to raise quite a bit of money in, in uh, the market, and it has currently about $10 billion in open lines of credit. And then I should also mention another area which I, I haven't given you statistics on here, but India also has had this program called ITEC, Indian Technical Economic Cooperation, and these are basically fellowships that India gives to other countries, um, and it determines how many it, it'll give each year to which country, for uh, training of civil servants to come over to India for, for two weeks to six months to get statistical training, etc. So what, what you might notice here is that Bhutan is by far the largest recipient of Indian aid, whether you look at it from the last 13 years, which is this pie over here, about 50% of grants going to Bhutan. Um, this, is, this over here just looks at the last seven years, but it hasn't changed much. Second largest recipient is Afghanistan, where India is the fifth largest donor. And then um, there's what you'll also notice is when you look at the countries, who is getting what? you see that almost all the recipients of grants are in Asia, and they're actually, most of them, in the immediate neighborhood. Whereas, increasingly, the 
Exim Bank line of credits, the open line of credits in the last seven years, 60% of them have gone to Africa and about a little bit more than a third to Asia. Where are the lines of credits to Asia going? And so we try to map it out. I don't know if you can actually, can you see the color? It shows up more better on my screen. But I guess the key here is to point out that the two largest recipients are two immediate neighbors, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Bangladesh got a, a billion US dollars a couple of years ago which was then changed to 200 million in grant and 800 uh, million line of credit. And Sri Lanka, I'll go into in a minute. But you can see that, that uh, it's sort of spread widely in the region. Um, turning to case studies, just to give you a flavor for how India engages um, with particular countries that are important to, to India one of them being Sri Lanka. And uh, you know, that's the Indian coastline. I think it's 37 kilometers from the last Indian island to the coast of Sri Lanka. And I think that tells you why Sri Lanka is important to India. I don't know if any of you noticed in the news also, um, China is negotiating with Sri Lanka and uh, they are talking about signing a free trade agreement. This, of course, uh, will further mobilize domestic opinion in India uh, for remaining highly engaged in Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka is strategically important. It has received uh, about 1.2 billion US dollars in terms of line of credits over the last, over a seven year period. Um, and when you look at where those uh, lines of credits are located. They're overwhelmingly located in the north, which is where the Tamil population, if you know anything about the Civil War, there also, right, it was, uh, it was this area there. Um, and there's the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. And so there are domestic pressures to remain engaged in, in that area. When you look at the sectoral, sectoral breakdown of grants over here, uh, a large chunk over nearly two-thirds, uh, went towards emergency type or categorized as emergency aid, and a large part of this was emergency um, housing reconstruction after the end of the Civil War. When you look at line of credits, and this will be a trend when we look at the other case studies, sector-wide allocation of line of credits in Sri Lanka, a large chunk going towards railways, and almost all of those are in the north also. So large chunk towards infrastructure there. Turning towards Myanmar, where India is starting to uh, increase uh, its, its engagement. Um, we can see here from, from this chart that since the last, over the last uh, six years, the, the trend has been upwards, as it has been, by the way, for most of these countries. Um, and why is Myanmar important? Well, if we go back to, just sort of a, as an overview, right, here it is located, and this is India. So clearly, uh, to, to follow up on India's uh, foreign policy called the Look East policy, Burma or Myanmar, is essential to, 
to further engagement in uh, Eastern Asia. And in, indeed, much there, when we look at the sectoral breakdown of grants, here, uh, a significant chunk, nearly two-thirds um, of grants and nearly 40% of line of credits committed over the last seven years or so have gone towards infrastructure and transport, broadly speaking, um, with 200, over 250 million in grants and over 300 million in lines of credit. As India aspires to greater relevance, um, in the Asia-Pacific, and also to follow up on its foreign policy of uh, looking east, engaging eastward. Um, these kind of engagements with uh, Southeast Asian countries are only likely to increase, particularly, I think, with, you can see here that there is a strategic interest then in terms of why India is likely to remain engaged with Myanmar. Vietnam is another interesting case study. Um, has been more in the news lately. India has had a long engagement, actually, uh, with Vietnam. And there, perhaps, the geopolitics has been in the paper a little bit more. Um, both India and Vietnam concerned about South China Seas, both also interested in accessing natural resources for their growing economies and ensuring free and safe shipping lanes. So, and increasingly, uh, when you look at trade relations between those two countries, this, of course, India's trade relations with many countries until the mid-90s were fairly closed, but there has been a steep increase the last few years in trade between these two countries as their geopolitical concerns are also increasingly aligning. So um, in Indian aid, and this is a sectoral breakdown of grants that India has given, um, a large chunk of what is going are, um, includes things such as computers, which are then installed on Vietnamese Navy vessels. So this question that your uh, foreign minister raised yesterday about what counts as uh, foreign aid versus military aid is an interesting one to think about in this context. Um, another one that I, I, I put up here because I thought it might be uh, of particular interest here is India did not engage with Pacific Island states um, really until quite recently. And uh, that engagement, while still relatively small, we are still, I think, talking about uh, 10 million or so, um, is nevertheless quite large compared to what it was just uh, seven, seven, eight years ago, uh, which was uh, negligible. And there, when you break it down by who are the recipients, you know, people have been asking me, the thinking that Fiji is the largest recipient, well, it's not. It's PNG here. Um, and there, the, the interest is also in terms of accessing natural resources to diversify its energy uh, imports, but also with the potential of uh, accessing deep sea mining, liquefied natural gas extract, extraction, etc. So, uh, 
uh, increasing engagement by India with countries which had, it really didn't have much contact with at all before. And then finally, the last case study that I would like to, um, to look at a little bit here is Afghanistan, which is the second largest recipient of Indian aid. Um, much of the aid to Afghanistan, by the way, all aid to Afghanistan is only in the form of grants. There are no, uh, to date, no loans or lines of credit, though there have been some discussions on a line of credit. Um, Afghanistan, have, India, the Indian government has repeatedly said that it has committed $2 billion to Afghanistan. Um, the advantage of not being a government official and being at a think tank that's independent is we can go and research that. And in fact, that figure is not entirely true. We can only find $1 billion in commitments um, and about $800 million in disbursements so far. But it far exceeds India's commitments to any other country except Bhutan. In addition, I should mention, especially uh, given the, the questions that arose about whether one should look at scholarships um, and training as, as foreign aid or not, um, India gives over 2,000 scholarships and training slots annually to Afghanistan. I believe it's the largest provider of scholarships uh, and training slots um, for Afghans to come and study in India. It has humanitarian engagement in Afghanistan, feeds over two million um, schools through uh, children in, in primary schools through multivitamin fortified biscuits, but it also has um, other interests, right? So there is the humanitarian, um, there is this issue of accessing potentially natural resources in Afghanistan. India has a um, won the rights to mine the Hajigak mines, which are um, iron mines located in central northern Afghanistan, but also through Afghanistan to access uh, Central Asia. And then there's, of course, also the, the geopolitics of um, Pakistan, sandwiched between Afghanistan and India. India quite worried about its domestic security and the threats that a resurgent of a uh, fundamentalist regime might, might pose to India. So given all of these concerns that India has about uh, its security, its interest in energy trade, etc., its engagement in Afghanistan is not about to disappear anytime soon. Um, just to turn briefly, I know I'm running out of time, to the geopolitical question here. I mapped out India and, and China and who they give aid to. So the countries in yellow are the countries that only get money from India. The countries in blue, notably Pakistan, are the countries that, I don't know if you can, can you see that it, those are two different colors? Hopefully. <laughs> uh, Pakistan, it shows up on my screen, but it, from this angle, it doesn't look any different. Um, so Pakistan is one of the few countries that only receive aid from China in the neighborhood and not from India. But what, what I think hopefully is noticeable is that the bulk of countries in the broader Asian neighborhood actually uh, see an engagement of both China and India. 
or to look at it another way, now just looking at the countries in the Asian rim, in the Indian Ocean uh, rim area, um, where, as you know, we, we know that these shipping lanes are where the bulk of, of trading is done, um, global trading. If you then map out the countries where China has either military engagement or has started investing in ports, those are the red dots. I've just put them myself so they're not geographically accurate. But, but I wanted you to just have a look, you know, where is China engaged and where is, for example, China has the rights to the, is in fact managing the port in Pakistan right across the border. India is financing a port <laughs> in Iran uh, as an entryway of also into Afghanistan. So once you map these things out, it's clear that there is a geopolitical uh, part of this. Okay, so quickly to wrap up on my conclusions. Um, Indian development cooperation is likely to continue rising, likely to see an increase in line of credits also in Asia, likely to see greater use of economic diplomacy, using diplomacy to open up markets for Indian goods also. Yet, and that, that is what I, I wanted to also bring across, is uh, the size of India's foreign ministry is the size of Singapore's in terms of foreign service officers. Huge capacity constraints, as it is, just to deal with foreign relations. And on top of that, aid management or development cooperation is added on and is, is managed by the Ministry of External Affairs. There are no large plans for increasing hiring. They've increased it... Uh, Tiny, tiny amount. So the real capacity constraints already were already before you saw those kind of increases. Um, in addition to that, people are generalists, are moved around very quickly, have no training on development issues. For example, I was engaging last year in May with somebody who had just been moved to DPA in April. She mo was moved again by September. Now, if you have that rapid kind of turnover, and it's not uncommon in the Indian ministries, not only the external affairs ministry, um, it's really difficult to have any kind of knowledge retention. So given these capacity issues, this is going to have a real, uh, pose a constraint in terms of efficacy of their uh, development uh, partnerships. And so given these constraints on the one hand, and India's rising geostrategic interests, rising development aid volume, um, given the fact that international financial institutions, UN, World Bank, IMF, etc., have not accommodated from India's viewpoint, it's, um, it's wanting to you know, join the Security Council, etc. Um, and this just to sort of end on the BRICS theme here, um, if countries such as India are not accommodated and have, as we have now, I think by the end of the second day of this conference, seen, have little incentive to engage with DAC because this was a structure set up and developed by developed countries, um, they will have all the more incentive to, to turn to new organizations that might come up, such as the BRICS 
um, which enable them to play a greater role. This um, also presents the opportunity to establish donors such as Australia to work with India and other countries as uh, you know, India has capacity constraints, others might have some more money, and together they might be able to work better in other forms. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rani. You know, yesterday in my, my own presentation, I recommended that DAC donors in their obsession with China don't, uh, should not ignore India. And I think Rani's just given us the evidence of um, why they shouldn't ignore India. To our last speaker, uh, I'd like to introduce Sean Burgess, who is a lecturer in international relations at the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. Uh, Sean had a previous career at CETA, I believe, and uh, his interests cover the area of non-traditional aid with a particular focus on Brazil. Thanks very much, and thank you, Stephen, for inviting me to come and speak at the conference. It's uh, always kind of a pleasure to talk about Brazil and its development assistance because people don't really know much about it. Um, so I'm going to try and do two things today. I'm going to try and give you a bit of a sense of why Brazil is engaging in development assistance, and I'm going to also do something which I think, well, I know in some development agencies gets completely ignored and needs to be looked at very carefully, and that's why do we do foreign aid. And it's the motivations, and I don't mean helping people. I mean up on that higher political level that uh, the foreign minister was talking about yesterday. So four things I'm going to try and go through fairly quickly. I'm going to do this old school style, no PowerPoint, no overheads, so it's just me and my voice. Uh, partly because there's not much point in a way because the way that Brazil tracks its data, I don't have anything that's up to date to give you. So there's nothing really to look at. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to go through the institutional structure for Brazil's foreign aid and how they provide it, or their ODA. And this, this does matter the way it's set up. A bit of a sense of the scale of the assistance. Then a, a quick run through some of the foreign policy literature on the motivations for foreign aid, which is where I generally come at it from. And then some of the stuff that, that comes out of the Brazilian case. So a couple things to get clear at the start. Um, if we have any Brazilian diplomats in the room right now, they're probably getting quite upset with me because I'm talking about Brazilian foreign aid. We don't do foreign aid. We do South-South cooperation. Okay, so we need to compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges. Take the DAC definition of what counts as ODA and look at what Brazil does as South-South cooperation. It's the same thing. So it's not meant to imply any kind of uh, hierarchical relationship, which is what they object, what Brazilians object to. It's just to say that we're talking about the same, same basic stuff. Um, yes. Okay. Second point is, uh, as I said earlier, we need to think more about why states engage in foreign aid and development assistance provision. And on a political level, on a, on, uh, away from the idea of helping other countries, because it... If you open up the motivational package, you start to find different reasons for doing things. So as you are just talking about, geopolitics matters. And it's one of the classic reasons in the foreign policy literature of why you would do foreign aid. Um, and this resonates through Brazil. This is a country which still has 30 to 40 million people in desperate poverty who, uh, well, as everybody's going to find out this summer or winter in this country, probably can't get people to the game on time. Right? If anyone who's flown through Brazil knows what I'm talking about, it's horrific. Yet, last week in the Senate, the Brazilian Foreign Minister, Luiz Alberto Figueiredo, was saying the Brazilian, the Brazilian Cooperation Agency of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is a fundamental arm of our foreign policy action and is responsible today for hundreds of technical cooperation project actions in about 100 developing countries. 
It is our face of solidarity. It is our face of international insertion as a friendly country that is present, and not just present, but collaborating in the development of countries across the third world. So Southern Solidarity. And this comes from Lula, uh, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, president from 2003 to 2010. And it's genuine. It's real. However, it's surface level. right? This is, this is packaging. There's a lot more going on underneath. Right. So the institutional structure. So again, where is the Agencia Brasileira de Cooperação, the Brazilian Cooperation Agency, ABC? It's inside the foreign ministry. So it's a part of the foreign ministry. ABC is the body that used to coordinate the inflow of foreign aid into Brazil, and it now coordinates the outflow of development cooperation assistance. You find the same thing in Chile. I think uh, Carmen can correct me. Um, I think Mexico's built much the same way. So this is not that uncommon a situation. Um, the key thing is it's part of Itamarati, the Brazilian foreign ministry. Now, has anyone here dealt with Brazilian diplomats? Yeah. So you know what I'm getting at here. These people are very, very smart, very capable, incredibly hierarchical. Um, it's, the, the institution is so hierarchical and disciplined that the military went, you're a model for us during the military years. <laughs> now, this is not to be a slight on the organization. It's just to say that it's, it's, it's got fairly clear lines of action and uh, decision-making and how things are done. So the explosion of life of ABC took place under the leadership of a gentleman named Marco Forani. He was of ministro rank, which is a mid-level diplomat. He's now the consul general in Tokyo. And it went from being almost non-existent to something that when Farani came to Canberra, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Aussie people, but he was greeted basically as a visiting minister. Same thing happened at CEDA when he arrived in Ottawa. He was greeted as a minister. And this is a mid-level diplomat, significantly under the rank of ambassador. Um, he had a handful of diplomats, four or five, and he had about 120 other people working in the, the agency. And I suspect this has shrunk a bit since then, but, but I, again, finding out exactly is hard to know. Um, Budgetary terms, uh, hiring and uh, he, he, getting people employed in the Brazilian government is really hard because you can't get rid of them. So what you'll find is that the Brazilian government gives a good chunk of money to the UNDP, which then cycles around and hires contractors for the, to work at ABC. So it's sort of a little, the Brazilians call it jeito, a little game of way to get things done without worrying about the rules. So there's about 100, 120 people brought in on this basis. But that means they cycle through and they don't stay. You don't have the institutional memory. The key people in this process are the diplomats, four or five of them. None of them really want to be there because this is seen as being a career backwater. It's not the serious business of the UN, of the World Trade Organization, of high politics. So there's not really a, an incentive outside of Farani who really embraced this to have a diplomatic career stream. The other important thing is, uh, well, in symbolic structures, so the Itamarati is in a palace complex. You have the main palace building, then you have an annex with a lot of office buildings, another annex where the trade guys are. They're all connected by passageways. So you don't need to go out into the sun or into the rain in Brasilia. <laughs> ABC is not in this building. I actually think this is quite symbolic, but it's within sight. So it's across the parking lot and across the field, and then you have to go out, look around the corner, and you can see the foreign ministry. So it's, part, it, it's, it's in sight, but sort of out of mind, almost, in, in a certain way. Um, and... What's very important, and I get to this in budgetary terms, is that ABC doesn't um, do foreign aid the way that we do. It coordinates the projects, it receives the requests, it finds the partners within the Brazilian government to do the stuff. So it doesn't actually run it, uh, per se, in the way that you would be familiar with an AusAid or a CEDA or a DFID. So it's a very different form of operation. It's a clearinghouse in, in many ways. So what's going on with this? Well, June 2013, and I don't, this is where things get fuzzy and why I have no graphics for you, because there's a lot of flex going on. Um, 
To say that there's a debate and contention about Brazilian foreign policy right now is to severely understate it. Um, the foreign minister was basically made to resign over a crisis with Bolivia last, last summer. Um, in June, you had rumors that ABC was going to be completely pulled out of the foreign ministry and put into the Ministry of uh, Development and International Trade, and that it was going to be a separate agency with its own independence, and it's going to be focused on a little bit of development, but mostly commercial trade opportunity promotion. Um, hasn't happened yet, as Figueiredo suggested last week. Foreign ministry won that bureaucratic battle, they still own it. Um, but the point being, Dilma doesn't like foreign policy, the president, she doesn't like it, and so she's not really that interested. Um, another institution that often gets mixed into this, and I'm going to push it right out the side because it operates completely independently, is the Brazilian National Development Bank. Um, this thing makes the World Bank look small. It, loaned, it dispersed about $90 billion last year. Um, it runs export lines of credit, which I'll talk about a little bit at some point, perhaps, but the point being, people think this is a massive thing that does a huge amount of work. Catherine Hochstetler and uh, Al Montero got the raw data, checked it. It's about 2 to $3 billion in loan portfolio for what we might push into the aid category. So it's not as big as we thought. It's, it's a lot smaller. Um, all right, so how's, how does all of this work? So what happens is the developing country comes up and it goes to Brazilian diplomats and says, we would like some assistance with X. We would like to build an experimental farm in Kenya that was announced last week, uh, an antiretroviral program in Mozambique, or a, a capacity training program in somewhere like Paraguay. And then ABC goes, okay, well, let me go ask around. And so what, what then happens is the, the diplomats go and they talk to the people at uh, the different Brazilian ministries and, and state agencies. So Embrapa is a, one of the top agricultural research groups in the world. Fundacional uh, Osvaldo Cruz is public health, Senai, Senalc, or technical training and administrative training, things like this. So they go, they don't ever contract out. Of, of the government. So it's not, there's no bid process, there's no tendering, there's no need to monitor contracts. Instead, what happens is they take the internal people and they have the expertise in the country. It is really, in some, for a lot of areas, the best place to get the expertise. And ABC buys the plane ticket, arranges for the per diem, and pays the, uh, the insurance. And the salary is paid by the home ministry. So for those, you know, that's cheap. That's really, really cost-effective delivery. Because <laughs> consultant rates tend to be an awful lot higher than, uh, than full-time staff. So last set of data we have is from the 2010 document by IPEA, which is the Institute of Applied Economic Research. It's kind of it's a government-funded, supported, owned, but semi-independent think tank. Um, they looked at ABC spending from 2005 to 2009. I haven't seen anything that's come up since then. Uh, over that five-year period, uh, they figured it was about $1.426 billion was spent uh, on various lines. Of that, $1.08 billion went to international organizations in various forms. 138 million on scholarships. There's a lot of Lucifone uh, students brought from Africa in particular into Brazil. 80 million on humanitarian relief and 126 million or so on technical cooperation. Um, I've talked to Stephen about this, a project to figure this out in the past, and he, I think you're right, he told me it won't work, but to try and figure out the multiplier effect. I kind of roughly guess about a factor of 10. There's no HR that's needed, there's no contract supervision, your, your costings are lower. So once you start stripping out, I think of it in terms of CETA, the 12 stories they had. Once you start stripping out 8, 9, 10 floors at headquarters, um, you saved an awful lot of money on salaries. <laughs> so at that point, uh, 2010, you had uh, 400 projects in 58 countries. Um, it's, it's crept up again a bit since then. Um, 
About half of them are in Africa, uh, predominantly in Lusophone countries. Uh, 23% in South America, 12% in Central America, the Caribbean, and some other stuff scattered around. All right, so that was in 2010. There was an election in 2010. Lula, the man who gave his Asturias Prize from the, the, the Prince of Spain to the, set up the UN Hunger Fund, is out of office. And his technocratic uh, chief of staff, Dilma, is now president. Dilma doesn't like to fly, is, is reportedly. Dilma's really worried, appropriately, about the developmental challenges at home. Uh, she's not interested in foreign affairs. She doesn't have time for the generalist fl- generalists and the fluffiness that you find in foreign, uh, foreign affairs. And this is not meant to be a slight. I mean, it's a very distinct skill to be a diplomat. But when you're looking for engineers and doctors and issue-specific expertise, it doesn't fit with the technocratic mold. And this is what's got Dilma up a little bit. So 2011, I was, told, I was told, again, I've not been given numbers, but I was told by someone in the Africa unit at the uh, foreign ministry in Brazil was a 40% cut to money available for ABC. The following year, there was another 30% cut. And then compounded on top of this, the, the program sounds like it's become a victim of its own success. So Brazil expanded into Africa, the Caribbean, Central America. They're doing good programs. The programs in Brazil work. Everybody wants to learn from them. Everybody wants to borrow the technical expertise. So there's a lot of requests coming, and it's got to the point where they're having to turn them all down because they're saying, well, A, everybody's out. B, we have no money to help. And C, we actually need these people to do some work at home too. So it's working well that way. But again, it's running into structural limitations. So, you know, Figueiredo talked about this last week, and he, you know, he had, I, I'm, I'm making him sound like he talked about this a lot. All told, we're looking at about 140 words in two and a half hours of testimony. But he mentioned it, which is something new in Brazil. And he was saying, you know, with resources that are not growing, there are limited resources. Even so, there are great successes and great efficiency. So if you talk to people in Mozambique, uh, Pro Savannah, which is a program to figure out what kind of agricultural work we could do in Mozambique, because it's the same as the northeastern Brazil, climatically and uh, geologically, is hugely popular. Um, the public health system in Namibia was built up with Brazilian assistance. Um, you also have uh, you know, a whole series of experimental farms. Like I said, one's just been launched in Kenya. There's another one working in Ghana, and I think they've got one in Senegal as well. These are sort of big projects. Okay, so what's going on with all this? Why are they doing this? Um, so I said foreign policy um, approach is how I look at these questions. And I'm going to go through this really fast because I think it's, it's basically the, the words tell you what you need to know. We don't need to go through all the theoretical background. But if you, there's not been much research on this lately. Um, you know, I think Ben can probably concur to this, Ben Day. Uh, the key stuff comes back almost from the 1960s. Um, and the one that I, I anchor on the most is from 1962, and it's Hans Morgenthau. So I'm betraying my sort of viewpoint on the world, which is a bit realist and acid. But he came up with six reasons why you would give foreign aid. So it's humanitarian. Something bad happens, you want to help. Subsistence foreign aid, people are starving or dying, you need to do some help. Um, military aid, um, that's now out, out of the DAC rules, but when you think about the Cold War context, there was an awful lot of that going on, and frankly, there still is. Um, bribery, um, far be it for me to suggest that Australia engaged in that Security Council run up uh, as a Latin Americanist. <laughs> was that $400 million for Latin America that's not been renewed? <laughs> um, or the Grenadian uh, government houses we heard. Um, prestige. Uh, the prestige is conceived of in terms of what the recipient country is getting. So the stadium, the government house, uh, a lot of the stuff that China's accused of doing. And then foreign aid for economic development, inciting economic development in the other country, uh, which is sort of, the, I think, uh, morph the language a bit and we get where we are with what we used to think about, about development assistance. 
all of these things stick well with the DAC countries. Um, and where I think things get a little bit fuzzy is when we start to look at the emerging donors. And you need to start shifting the logic because the way that um, these motivations are interpreted and fit into what the emerging countries do is different. And the, the Brazilian case is what I'm using to, to map it out. So you get humanitarian aid. So Brazil is still in Haiti. Um, and apparently there's still a lot of public support and government support and the Haitians want them to stay. So they're doing a lot of work in Haiti on this. Um, Lula's work when he set up the World Hunger Fund, I mean, this, this was real. Lula's came in with a very basic governmental agenda. Everybody in Brazil should have, he's apparently had three full meals a day or four, and they got him down to two, and they pulled it off. Um, what this gets to, though, and I, I've got it under humanitarian, but it's a bigger picture thing, um, and, and this is a really brutal thing to say uh, in a, a crowd like this, but for us in rich world countries, development assistance is almost a hobby. It's something that we do to feel good, right? If we got rid of AUSAID, got rid of CETA, got rid of DFID, it wouldn't make massive difference to the daily lives of most people in, our, in these DAC member countries. Because poverty, you know, this kind of ground, grassroots poverty alleviation is not the core business of public policy. Now, that's different once you go to a Brazil, a China, or an India. The kind of questions and the problems that we're trying to deal with that we're all worried about here that is what public policy is about. That is what gets you elected. But it's not what gets you elected here. So it creates a very different dynamic and a very different relation to what you're doing. So when Luna stands up and says, we need to do something to end world hunger, you know, this, this is coming from a man who grew up in a shack and was hungry most of the time. Um, so it, it creates a very different pressure on how you go about doing things. Um, it also puts a very different pressure on the whole results aspect. There is no patience. There is no time to work with things that don't work. You have to get it right because this is what's required either for political stability in your country or for electoral success and so on. Um, subsistence aid. Um, there's not quite so much of that, but the, in the Brazilian case, um, you do actually find subsistence aid, but I don't think it's reported. I don't think it's tracked, and it takes place in kind of a, a bizarre way. It, it, it's leakage in the border regions. So the Brazilian attitude has been kind of you live on the border between Paraguay and Brazil, sometimes it goes down the middle of the street. If you, your kids happen to show up at the school on a regular basis, we're not going to ask where you live. Or if you show up at a health clinic, we're not really worried about which side of the road you live on. So allowing, uh, Brazil's consciously allowing the leakage because it knows the Paraguayan state, the Bolivian state, or the Peruvian state in the backwoods may not be able to provide the services that are needed. So it's like, fine. If you want to come over and use it, not a problem. Um, military aid. Um, out of Brazil. This is, uh, I'm going to say there's not much to speak of, but then again, there is. Um, one, I don't know whether to believe this or not, and I need to go to, I need to, go to Namibia to ask, but apparently the Namibian Navy is talking about operating exclusively in Portuguese because their officer corps is being trained in Brazil. So, you know, it makes some sense. So they're getting assistance with equipping the boats from Brazil. The other thing to remember about Brazil is that it's a major arms producer. And when you look at the 2008 national defense policy, an explicit part of this is an interoperable, and this is expanded in the last document that came out last year, interoperable defense systems in South America, and they're pushing this for the South Atlantic. Interoperable is, to me, code word for everybody buying Brazilian kits so that you can all use what we're using because we're going to be the biggest group. Um, so that, that's actually got major economic implications for the Brazilian economy and for the expansion of exports. Um, Foreign aid for development. Um, this is uh, this is where everything turns. So Brazil wants to help its partner countries grow. It's been pretty clear that if the other countries don't grow, we're not going to grow. We cannot grow without the South growing with us. 
but the flip side to this is Brazil's also doing really quite well out of out of uh, out of the, the aid that it's giving. So speeding up a little bit here. Um, prestige, the prestige element matters to Brazil because it shows that it's arrived. So the fact that Ferrani was treated like, greeted like a minister and had this hectic schedule, I mean, it showed that Brazil's really important. An explicit arm of Brazil's foreign policy right now is to uh, broadcast its social policies as world-beating and something everybody should adopt, right? So conditional cash transfers. It's a Brazilian program, right? Based on Bolsa Familia? Wrong. It's based on Progresso. Brazilians marketed it better. Tracy Fenwick, my colleague, can tell you about this. So they've done very good marketing and political pressure to seize, you know, to seize that. Um, economic development. Um, it pushes Brazil as a partner country. Um, but here's the thing. So you look at something like Pro Savannah in Mozambique. It's about creating agricultural capacity and figuring out what can be done. All the documentation is in Portuguese. And who are the ones that are looking at it? Well, Odebrecht, which is a big Brazilian construction company, but it's got enterprises everywhere. It's talking about creating either an entire cassava or chicken supply chain right the way through uh, in Mozambique. Vale is desperate for this thing to go, the mining company, because they want to locally source all of their food for their mine and everything around it and set up businesses based on top of that. So it's, it's there, it's doing good things, but who's jumping in and doing the foreign direct investment? So trade flows linked to the aid may not be so good, but the interesting thing to look at is the development, uh, is the FDI flows and, and who's jumping on top of that. Um, public policy capacity. So Brazil's a fairly insular country. It's like the U.S., right? If you live in Brazil, you don't need to know about anywhere else. Everything you need is there. It's a, there's, there, is, there is a sense of exceptionalism. Um, so when you've got increasingly complex public policy coming up and you're running and you've got uh, bureaucrats without a lot of international experience, Foreign aid, this foreign aid program, the way they run it, becomes very useful because they get international experience. You get to send your technocrats overseas and come back with ideas and experience and exposure to other cultures and bring that back in to try and improve the domestic context. Um, and then the last one here, and we can't forget about this, is political relationship building. Um, and this has been very important for Brazil because it's, you know, Brazil doesn't want to tear down the global system. It's doing too well with how the international system works. But it would like to shuffle the seats at the main table. So it wants to get Canada gone, right? get rid of Canada. Australia, bye-bye. UK, you're contestable. Um, they want to be up there with sort of the BRICS plus the USA and Europe. That's, so this is important for helping that. So two conclusions, really, really fast. Um, foreign aid is not an altruistic activity from Brazil, but it sort of is. But there's a very hard interest component underwriting, underpinning it. And the second one that we need to keep in mind is when we're taking a slightly more acidic, realist-based uh, approach at looking at emerging market uh, uh, development assistance provision is that the payoffs are different. We have to be using a different matrix and a different framework for thinking about why our country is doing this and why are they going to continue to do it. Yeah. Thanks very much, Sean. Really interesting to compare the motivations across the three countries. Maybe if I could ask the panel to please have a seat and hook up your portable mics. And how much time do we have for questions? 20 minutes? Okay. Um, I'd ask, I think there's going to be a lot of questions for this session, so I'd respectfully ask that people keep their questions short. And equally to our panel, try to keep um, your replies brief. Okay. Thank you. My name is Tessie McKenna. I come from the Pacific, so thank you for that. Um, mine's quite a simplistic question. So we've heard about individual countries that form this 
thing that we call the bricks. To what extent at all, if at all, is there any sense of some sort of group approach or shared approach arising, or can we expect that in the next little while? Um, the early research from the DAC was that although the BRICS in particular, Brazil was saying that South-South cooperation was yielding better development results, um, findings at least in 2011 were that they weren't. So I just wonder if, in fact, South-South cooperation is tending now to yield better results. Hi, University of Sydney. I guess I just wanted to get a sense from you guys of what you think the chances are of a brick multilateral institution or an actual development bank to rival some of the existing World Bank or IMF, and I guess a, a bolder um, re-architecturing of the global system. Um, if you think that's something that might be possible, and if so, what it might look like. Go to the panel. Randy, do you want to take the Pacific question first? Um. Thank you. 
South-South cooperation didn't yield much in terms of results. Um, I'm interested to know what that looked at. I haven't looked at that. But uh, you know, India, for example, doesn't report its aid to that. Um, there are issues with you know, India actually doesn't, doesn't um, assess its aid and its aid effectiveness. Um, but perhaps the norms that that established are not the same norms as what some of these um, uh, newer non-traditional donors see as their goals when they engage in development issues. Dr. Sun? Uh, on the group approach, I think I can get them. We we been put together. We can put together. The, the British countries come together to uh, in the negotiation with the North countries in many many international affairs. So I as as to the cooperation uh, between the the British countries. Uh, I think it's possible, but far, far from the end. As the SSC, uh, yeah, China has different language with that about SSC. Uh, for example, for the Taipei, uh, for, for China or BRICS, I think, uh, we have not the language of Taipei or anti. We, we started the from a or international development corporation, a beginning as a mutual benefit beginning. So at the beginning, China, China started its project in the 1950s. So for China emerging, emerging donor, I think it's not so accurate. <laughs> it is maybe more accurate to describe it quite a, as a traditional, Tough, tough cooperation. Partner. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not the language of China. So we, 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 we call it mutual benefit. We are developing, not a developing country. So, we have to develop ourselves. <laughs> I would just sort of add maybe a little color. Look at the brick. When you talk about brick cooperation, look at the brick declarations, and you'll never see the same. They, they know they're not going to agree on something. They don't talk about it. It's very strategic that we're not This is, like you said, it's pragmatic. What we do together, and we'll not worry about the rest. Um, again, South-South cooperation, I agree with you. Um, how are you defining that evaluation? So your results, development results in experimental farm or an education program are going to take a lot longer to show up than they are on some of the other things that the DAC countries do. So there, there could be a time scale question in place, but maybe, maybe it's right. Maybe it's not working. Uh, and the chances of brick bank is entirely in China. <laughs> okay, we'll move across the room. There's a question there, and then after he. Um, I stand late and leave that. So, my question is to get your opinion on where, what Australia, what, what should the relationship between Australia and the BRICS be? Uh, and what does Australia need to do differently to, to make the most of that relationship? Oh, Im um, Yang from the uh, International Monetary Fund. Um, just a quick comment. Um, a comment here, the BRICS do seem to have a 
number of common interests in uh, IFIs and the international financial uh, institutions, like the IFI and the World Bank, that we all uh, know that there's a global rights issue. So there are some common interests. But the question is, uh, to all three people, um, is a little bit provocative. Um, the question is like this. Whether you call China, India, Brazil, are emerging donors or not, the fact is that they have scaled up the, uh, their assistance in recent years. So it looks like emerging donors uh, anyhow. The question is, what do you think that China or the BRICS brought into the international aid arena that was missing? In other words, what are the contributions of the new emerging donors to the aid landscape? Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Catherine Gilbert. Thanks for your presentations. My question is um, similar to Ben's. Um, I was just wondering how the BRICS, or if you have any observations about how they see trilateral cooperation. The minister spoke about um, partnership with China in PNG, and I know Brazil received money for Australia, from Australia back ages. So I'm just wondering if you have any observations about how they see trilateral arrangements. Okay, who would like to? Tackle the question of Australia and the BRICS, Sean? Okay. <laughs> uh, I started with trilateral. Okay. <laughs> I'm mean, uh, actually talking to people about that the last two days, but doing something. Yeah, they hate it. Everybody hates it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this, is, this is the problem. I mean, it makes absolute sense, and it's a brilliant idea politically, in terms of being effective, this is wonderful. And then you run into the accounts and the lawyers, and it just falls apart. Um, I've talked to Canadian guys on the Haiti side, and I talked to Brazilian guys on the Haiti side, and that was a lot of travel, and they're all starving. They all personally like each other, they all think what they did was good, they all think that it wasn't worth the headache. Um, and so essentially, if you're looking at a trilateral and you're in Aussie, you need to get your uh, departmental agency secretary of whoever it would be now in the structure to crack some heads at the central agencies and tell them, we don't care what your procedures are, we're going to do this differently, it's only a couple of million bucks, take a deep breath, it'll be okay. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, not easy to do. <laughs> and the Australian Brick thing, um, anyway, so I'm part of ANCOX, the Australian National Center for Latin American Studies, and we're constantly trying to do stuff about the system of Latin American engagement and, and engagement. Um, there is a draft strategy apparently in the government, Australian government, somewhere for engagement with Latin America. The business community is gone. They're already there. The education sector is gone. They're already there. The government is still sitting here. And apparently the strategy is just stone dead because the reply that's come back up the chain is that, look, half this town made its career on China. They don't want to hear about anything else. So bottom line is, um, and strategically, to be so linked to China is a very bad foreign policy decision. You need to have countervailing forces, especially as the country deindustrializes. Right? You just lost, you just lost the automotive sector, so you need to have some way to have a counterweight to force trade concessions. You know, the Brazilians talk about coffee. It's two percent tariff for raw bean in China. It's ninety-eight percent frozen freeze-dried coffee. So where do you make your money on the coffee? It's not growing; it's processing it. So um, and it needs to be a little bit wider view, and it also needs to be a recognition that. Um, Brazil, probably globally, and India, certainly, um, are far more important globally than Australia. And so Australia needs to take that middle power role that does so well with the US and starting to do with China, and probably also do it with Brazil and India. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with the question. 
design project small, but it's their first steps. Um, and they were approached by India to uh, in Washington to to see where they could cooperate. They chose Afghanistan for both of very similar interests. So the Indian NGO um, <coughs> SEVA, Self-Employed Women's Association, um, is uh, with technical assistance and funding from, from USA looking to expand Afghanistan in, in a new project that's just um, starting. So I, I don't think that India in principle is is just um, not going to engage in trouble. It's just that they haven't been approached as a partner. And I think that's, you know, that goes back to the question, I guess, the first question on Australia and the BRICS, um, or I, I guess I read that as Australia and the individual countries. Um, I think what the relationship could be or where one could expand is to look at, you know, India, for example, as I'm sure is starting to engage countries. Um, this is obviously close to your neighborhood. This is this is where you have close strategic interests. And I don't think they would uh, be averse to engaging with Australia to to uh, look at third, third countries where they could engage. India has huge, as I mentioned, huge capacity constraints, but they're wanting to engage in regions that they weren't traditionally engaged with. So. I think that actually presents an opening for countries like Australia to not think about aid in the traditional aid, aid model, but think about how one more creatively engage with uh, countries such as India and China and, and be more open to being part of maybe new arrangements such as the Great Sank. So, um, to the question, uh, by the IMF representative on what are the BRICS bringing to the aid landscape um, is any different from what others have. And I haven't systematically looked at it, but certainly I was just talking to our Afghan colleagues more here, which um, was here earlier, about um, the amount of fellowships and, and scholarships given by India to engage for, for, for Afghan students to come to India and study there. And he talked about, he worked in France, but how uh, Afghans perceive it as uh, much easier to engage for cultural reasons, for um, you know, the political language is easier to understand, maybe between Indians and Afghans, enabling uh, quicker engagement and technical assistance, etc. So, um, it might not look different on paper, technical assistance, but the way they engage, you know, not driving around in armored vehicles, which you know, as American, when I was in Afghanistan in 2009, I couldn't go outside without driving up with security. So it's just very different kind of engagement, I think. Um, and the kind of assistance that they give um, is much more government to government, especially driven by their capacity constraints.
think the last word yeah. to Dr. Sun. As to the trilateral cooperation, I think China started for trilateral cooperation with uh, Australia, New uh, Zealand, and uh, UK, and also cooperated with uh, other agencies such as UNDPRO. So it's not an issue whether or not we should to do it. It's uh, it's a it's a complicated. Uh, trilateral, it sounds good, but uh, it, it's costly, uh, especially in coordination. So we just find a separate for the coordination between the two parties. So it's very costly. And uh, uh, as I understand and I, I know that Chinese government is very cautious about the, 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 the trilateral coordination. Uh, we need to, but with small steps, we could, uh, so, uh, about the, the contribution of groups countries to the landscape, I think uh, the specific countries are very, very happy to have so many donors. <laughs> <laughs> they have more choices. And so, let's change or give some indication to the new understanding of partnership. So, let's. <laughs> Thank you. We don't have time for any more questions. I'm sorry about that. I'll just end by saying uh, it's, we really are seeing how dramatically these new actors are changing the land score, landscape and the development discourse. And I think uh, next year when we're back in this room, um, we'll see further changes that are perhaps far more provocative. Thank you. And I'll invite you to teach. <laughs> You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.